Jesus' miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Good morning. This morning is a topic that, uh, as we continue to look at the real Jesus, is one of those topics that I think many of us would like to avoid. Um, It's just not a warm, fuzzy-feeling message in terms of the topic, because the focus of both of these texts that we read together today is this one word, offense. And it's it's not just, uh, it's just not an ordinary little offense. It's not like uh, we go through the day and we get kind of offended because uh, somebody doesn't say hi to us or we get, it's, it, this is, this is the word scandal, scandal. It's uh, the original Greek word is scandal on and it, and it's the word that means scandal for us. And, it, and it's this, it's this, have you ever been in a situation where you just afterwards you realized I could not stop myself and I wish I could have type of a feeling? It's this, it's this drive in us, this drive to fury, this drive to insult, this drive that just happens in us from sometime, sometimes. And today's message is very, very simple. The message is this, that everywhere Jesus went, he created a fence. And if we follow Jesus, if we truly follow him, we will too. Isn't that warm and fuzzy? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Isn't it great? I mean, that's just the message, you know, and it's so simple. Let's just pray and let's go home, right? Now let's just pray for a second, though. Lord, we we invite your Spirit's presence today as we look at this uh, text, as we discover uh, more of the real Jesus, not the Jesus that we would prefer, but the real Jesus, that you would open our hearts and that through this topic today that uh, is something we would a lot of times rather just avoid, that you would show us not only uh, the courage to follow you in it, but the joy of following you in it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the point. Unless you understand the offensiveness of Jesus, and not just just the, the nice little things that we sometimes disagree with, but the raw offensiveness of Jesus Unless we really understand what he talks about so often, the fact that the fact that Jesus spends a lot of time talking to us about conflict and wanting us to face it well 
I mean, a lot of his teaching is around this. And, and unless we learn to live in that and understand it, we will, instead of living with the real Jesus, we will live with the American, oftentimes I would refer to it as the pansy Jesus. The Jesus who just goes through life in our minds making everybody feel good, making everything warm and fuzzy and happy. But you see, when we live with the pansy Jesus, the result is that, is that we in our life miss so much of the transformation. In fact, we miss... In our attempt to choose a more peaceful version of Jesus, we miss peace in our own life. We miss joy in our own life. We miss transformation in our own life. And we miss the honor and the joy and the privilege of being a part of doing what Jesus does and bringing transformation to our friends, our family, and our community. We have to wrestle with this issue. So today we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is offensive to everyone briefly. And then we're going to look at understanding some of why Jesus is offensive. There's probably more reasons than we'll look at. And then we're going to look at how we can follow him in being rightly offensive. Great message, isn't it? Now we've already seen that Jesus is offensive, right? In our look at the real Jesus through the eyewitness account of Mark. If you remember back with me a few weeks ago in chapter 3, we saw how Jesus was so offensive that the, that the right-wing conservatives over here, the Pharisees, and the left-wing liberals over here, the Herodians, were so equally offended by him that they had enough fury of Jesus that his offense brought them together. They reached across the aisle and figured out how to be bipartisan on something. Their hatred of Jesus. We've seen how Jesus has offended the elite. We've seen how Jesus has offended the powerful and called them to something beyond what they're comfortable with. And today we see Jesus coming to Nazareth, this this humble little town, this town that is of, of no account in history, hardly ever written about, who we see Nathaniel in John chapter 1, whom Jesus describes Nathaniel, Nathaniel's character as one in whom there is no guile, there's no deceit, he's just honest. And Nathaniel says of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the kind of reputation this place had. And what we see today really is that the circle of offense in Jesus is complete. He offends the elite and powerful, and he offends the common folk. He offends the people from the big city, and he offends the people from the little city. He, and he offends the people who are intellectuals and the people who aren't. People everywhere are offended by him, many for different reasons. Think about it this way. We've already talked about the fact that in Mark, Jesus is establishing the whole theme of the kingdom of God as the centerpiece of everything he's teaching, right? And if we think of it this way, that the kingdom of God is this holy other culture from any culture we live in that is coming and interrupting our space, trying to bring us into the culture that he wants us to live in. It's, it's a cross-cultural experience. And we all know that we've had you know, experiences and, and stories if you've traveled cross-culturally, even if you've just gone cross-culturally in our community here where you offend people and not even realize it, right? I mean, sometimes it's really funny, like my brother who was finishing his doctorate at Cambridge in England, was recently was there fairly new, and a bunch of friends invited him out one day and said, hey, let's go out and do this. And he goes... It required a change of clothes. And so he goes, well, just a second, let me go change my pants. If you know in England, pants refers to your underwear. So everybody thought, 
so, anyway, some of them are just funny, but some of them are really offensive, right? So let's think about the offensiveness of the gospel of Jesus in the Western world, for instance. The Western world, we Americans are attracted to Jesus' teaching, his grace, his mercy, his, his, his statements about loving your enemies, his, his statements we really love about not judging others, right? We're attracted to all those things, and yet in our culture when the claim comes up that he is the only way, the one and true God, the one Savior of all, the one person who establishes morality, it leads to offense, doesn't it? And yet if we were to go to the Middle Eastern culture and say that same thing, they wouldn't be offended by the fact that there was one God and there was one person who established all morality. They believe that. The Jews and the Islamic people in the Middle East believe that. What they would be offended by is Jesus' teaching on turning the other cheek. What do you mean? An eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. i got to get these guys. They're infidels, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of theology and, and stuff that, that backs that up in that culture. Not, not fully, but some. John 15, 18, it says this, If the world hates you, and remember where Jesus is saying this, in John 15, Jesus has got, just gotten done talking to the people about the fact that they should abide in him, abide in the vine, right? Remember that parable? If you, Maybe you remember that parable. If you abide in me, you will what? Your life will be very fruitful. You will produce much fruit. You'll have much satisfaction, much joy. And then it says this wonderful phrase, No greater love has a man than to lay down his life for his friend. And then Jesus says this, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. All of that stuff comes as a package in Jesus's world. Jesus doesn't say one country, one people will have this visceral reaction of hatred towards me and fury towards me and dislike to me more than another group will. They may have it for different reasons. And you see, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is who He says He is, then we have to also accept the fact that He is a God who self-describes Himself as a person who will create offense and invites us to follow Him in that. Are we willing to follow Him in that? Second, why is Jesus offensive? We've said that he's offensive to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons, but there are some common things. Even in this passage, it starts off by saying, first, he taught the people. And it doesn't tell us in this passage specifically what he taught, right? We don't see that in this passage. But we know that it says elsewhere, wherever he went, he taught the kingdom of God is here. And he taught those same parables and principles we've heard all throughout. And the central theme of that is what? It's an offensive thing, isn't it? The central theme is if you want to follow God, if you want to receive receive forgiveness, and experience His love, it all starts with absolute surrender. It doesn't start anyplace else. It starts with recognizing our desperate need and repentance to receive that love and that forgiveness that He is so freely and graciously and wonderfully offering. And yet we can see around ourselves, maybe this is, maybe this is the way we see it. We can see the rich and the powerful or, uh, or the, or the well-educated people. We go through life believing we're strong. We go through life believing we're in control. And it's easy for us to not believe and be offended by the claim that we need a major overhaul in our life. That we're no better off than anybody else. And that becomes offensive. On the other hand, the people who are downtrodden may find offense in a different way. They may find offense because Jesus says, 
you need to be honest with your stuff. You need to repent and you need to own it and you need to expose the weakness. And you know what? In life, no matter how many times you've been told ripping that Band-Aid off fast is easier than leaving it on or, or taking it off slow, we still don't believe it. We still love to keep things covered up. We don't want to uncover things. We don't want to uncover our shame. And second, I think another reason why Jesus is offensive on a universal basis is because in Jesus, there's just an ordinariness. And it doesn't meet our expectations of what we think salvation should be like sometimes. Read the text. It says this. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't there sisters here? Is sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You see, Jesus was known by these people. He was one of them. He grew up with them. He lived with them. And he was an ordinary carpenter. In that day, the carpenter was kind of the entry-level job, bottom-of-the-rung job. Who is this man to teach us? Where does he find his power? How can a man like this find his power to do these things? And it goes on in there and says, Isn't this Mary's son? And that may seem a little innocuous to us at first when we listen to that, but in that day, they didn't say, this is Jesus, son of Mary, this is Peter, son of Anne, this is, they said, no, they said, this is James and John, sons of Zebedee, this is, this is Peter, or Simon, son of Jonah, this is Joseph, son of Alphaeus, it was always the father's name. So what's going on here? You can't tell for sure, but many scholars would say this. Remember that Nazareth is, Nazareth is where uh, Mary and Joseph grew up. They were from there. Remember this whole idea of uh, becoming pregnant before marriage that happened with Mary by the Holy Spirit and the fact that they didn't leave Nazareth until she was at least eight and a half months or somewhere along there and, uh, and, and then they came back when Jesus was still young. Many scholars believe that they came back to Nazareth probably when Jesus was somewhere between four and six years old, but we know for sure he came back before he was 12 years old. So he grew up with these people. They were his childhood friends. He worked alongside him in the field. He worked alongside him making instruments. And he just, he grew up with them. And we know that Joseph at one point in his life died. And many people believe that Jesus actually also for up to maybe 10 to 15 years was the sole provider or the main provider for his family's well-being. I mean, Jesus worked day in and day out working with stones and wood and tools and creating tools and building houses and just ordinary, ordinary guy. And yet, when they say, isn't this Mary's son, it's almost this barb saying, who is this bastard? Who is this illegitimate child to come to us who we worked with and tell us anything? Who is he to bring salvation? See, I think for most of us, we like to think of God coming and saving us, whether it's saving us to go to heaven or whether it's saving us from our financial predicament we're in or whether it's saving us from the disease we're facing right now or the relational difficulties. We want him to come in and we want it to be something grand. We want it to be something decisive. We want it to be something that is kind of angel singing in this transcendent experience. I mean, we really want him to come in. 
and do something. And, and for many of us uh, who have been following Christ for a long time, we even start to get into this kind of escapist thinking. When we look at offense and scandal, we start thinking about end times and we start thinking about Jesus coming back and we want to escape. And Jesus here is saying, I want you to join me in the offense, in those situations, and live with me there. I haven't called you to escape. You see, the Bible's vision of salvation, initiated by Jesus and Him coming as God to us in physical form, becoming embroiled in the same ordinary, everyday things that we do. We have to eat. Jesus had to eat. He had to prepare His food. He had to clean. He had to bathe. He had to do everything that we have to do. Just Jesus, God, coming and being a part of our ordinariness as a defining aspect of Him bringing salvation to us. You see, biblical salvation is not escape. It's the redemption of all of life that exists. It's a, re- a new and renewed heaven and earth and a new life and new bodies. It's almost like the picture of salvation in the Bible is actually this picture of life as it is now, minus the suffering, minus the pain, minus the relational difficulties, Minus the anxiety. In many ways, salvation is the ideal dreams that we all dream for in life of love and happiness and meaning and purpose. And I'm not a good enough scholar of all the other religions to say this on myself, but many scholars actually look at this and say that this is a unique claim of Christianity compared to all the other religions in the world. All the other religions talk about taking us out, escaping, and Christianity comes and says salvation is for the ordinariness of life and oftentimes comes to us through the ordinary experiences. There's an example of this in the Old Testament that we can look at illustrated in uh, 2 Kings 5, the, the story of Naaman. Some of you may be familiar with it. Naaman is this commander of the army of Aram, under, working under the king of Aram. And they've had great success. In fact, they're dominating over Israel and all the nations in the area. Israel is paying tribute to them because of being defeated by them. But the, Naaman has a problem. He's a leper. And he can't get healed. So one day in his house, he's talking and bemoaning this. And one of the little girl, servant girls that he captured in one of his raids on Israel, a little Israelite girl comes up to him and says, I know somebody who can heal you. There's this prophet in Israel. Go to him and he'll heal you. So Naaman goes to the king. He gets letters and, you know, goes with his bodyguard and he goes with all of his treasures to try to buy what he needs and make sure he's well prepared for it. And he goes to the king of Israel and, and eventually ends up at Elisha's door out in a little village. And Elisha refuses to even come to the door to talk with him. He sends his servant to talk to this important man and tells him, go wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be healed. What? That doesn't fit the storyline of our salvation experience that we think God should bring, does it? Go dip yourself seven times in the water? I could do that in my river outside my door at home. I would go, why? It doesn't meet Naaman's expectations. And, and for us, so much, of, so much of salvation, so much of what God wants to bring in our life is just ordinary. And it doesn't meet our expectations. It's everyday stuff. Naaman's angry. This guy won't even come talk to me. He won't even, he won't even 
darken the door to come and do anything. And, and this is not, this is what, he's asking me to do something that isn't worthy. I brought him gifts. I expected something more. I expected the man of God to come out and do some sort of big incantation or do something or ask me to do something big to earn this. Maybe go, maybe go fight a war or do something against some evil people or, or at least have him pray for me and anoint me with oil. Do something. But he says, no. Just go do something ordinary. Take a bath. You stink. Been on the road too long. And Naaman doesn't want to do it. He walks away from God's simple, ordinary command to him. Invitation. Invitation to healing to him. And Naaman's servants, thankfully, eventually prevail on him. They talk to him and say, well, if the man of God had come out and done this and this and this and all these big things and prayed over you and anointed with the oil, would you have done what he asked you to do? And, he, and Naaman says, yes. And so then they say, well, why won't you do this then? And Naaman relents and he does the simple, ordinary thing that God asked him to do. And in it, he finds healing. I think it begs a, a personal question for all of us to ask ourselves on a regular basis. What are, what are those ordinary things that God has asked you to do in following him? Just ordinary are any of them left undone? You know, God asks us to do the ordinary, and it doesn't look like much so often. He, you know, we'll come to him and say, I want to be healed, and he'll say, I want you to serve. He'll come to you in your moments and say, I, I want you to just go have a, I, I need a, a request for healing or deliverance or provision, and he'll say, I want you to go talk and and bless someone and minister to him. It's just very ordinary. And I think sometimes, sometimes I think God tests our faithfulness to follow him. And instead of meeting the demands of our egos as to what we think salvation should look like, I think sometimes he just wants to see what we'll do in following him. Matthew eleven six, Jesus says this. He says, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. We're going to be offended. Every one of us is going to be offended at some point by Jesus and what he asks us to do. And we'll wrestle with that. And Jesus is acknowledging the fact that we will wrestle with offense. But he's saying, don't pick up that rock. Don't pick up that weight. Don't carry that one with you. You know, I remember years ago, Wendy and I were really struggling financially at a point in our life. Not knowing what to do, some big needs coming up and not being able to address them. Feeling like for one of the first times in our life we would not be able to pay our bills. And uh, we were praying about it and God said, I want you to give a gift, a really large gift. Large gift by today's standards, a large gift back then to this missionary to the USSR. It just tells you we've been married a long time since the USSR was around then, doesn't it? We have been. And it didn't make logical sense. In fact, isn't it offensive for God to ask us to do something in the midst of our need, to ignore our need and to give and do something anyway? And I'm not sharing this to be formulaic at all in you give so you get or God always asks you to give money to give. The money the money's not the point here. For us, it was, a, it was a real sense of leading from God that this is what he wanted us to do. 
And God does, on occasion, ask us, and maybe frequently even, to give out of our need, whether that need is financial or, or whether that need is you need some support and God asks you to support someone else. You're depressed and God asks you to go care for somebody who's depressed. You're running out of time and God asks you to give a simple amount of time to have a conversation with somebody, to let them know they're loved by God and by you. To have an ordinary conversation, maybe even a conversation where we're afraid that having this conversation is going to result in in them being offended with us. And yet God asks us to do out of our ordinariness, ordinary things. And sometimes when we do that, isn't it the same the way that he came to us? In an ordinary moment, in an ordinary conversation over a cup of coffee, God speaks to us through someone and maybe we came to faith or, or maybe God answered a prayer and, and something in our lives. And the text moves on and it moves on from the offense of Jesus to Jesus sending his disciples out, telling them that they too will be offensive. That if we follow him, we too will create visceral responses of fury and angst and rejection and offense and other people around us. But I think it's interesting how he does this. Because the offense is couched in a how to do it that is different than many of us at times would think. The text tells us that Jesus sent them out with no money, no backup plan. They were just to go to these towns and they were to live within the realm of the hospitality of these towns. And we oftentimes think of hospitality in our world as like uh, my son wasn't here to get prayed for for graduation because he's refing soccer, making money for college at the moment today, but we're, he's graduating next week. And we think of hospitality as how nice of a party, how comfortable can we make all of our friends and family and everybody feel when they come over, right? We think that as hospitality. Well, the original understanding, the original root of hospitality is actually welcoming strangers, welcoming those people we don't know. And Jesus sends the disciples out without a backup plan. They're not to stay at the local Holiday Inn Express. They're not even supposed to stay at the Motel 6. They're supposed to go into a town and be completely dependent upon close relationship. And not only are they supposed to be completely dependent on those close relationships, they're not to bounce around, you know, oh, we stayed with this couple one night and now we're going to be in too much of a burden so we're going to stay with this couple the next night and this couple the next night. Why does Jesus do that? Because his whole approach to sharing the gospel is about being engaged at a deep level with people. He's sending them out to be dependent on these people's hospitality, to live with them, to serve with them, to clean up the dishes with them, to help them prepare the meals, to be in deep relationship, to serve them, to pray for them, to bring healing to them at an amazingly deep level, highly relational approach to preach. And then in the midst of that, to preach the gospel while they serve them by healing the sick and casting out demons. Jesus was telling them, intentionally, intentionally pour yourselves out in relationship and service as you also speak the gospel of the kingdom and as you also risk praying for them and expecting God to show up and do something as you pray for him, even in those ordinary moments. He wasn't sending them out as street preachers. He was sending them out to find a host home that welcomes you. And then he said, if they reject you and you, and you can't, through kindness, press that, through that, then shake the dust off your feet and realize that you've done what I asked you to do. 
Jesus sent them out in a highly, highly attractive way. And this is what we see in the early church as well. We see it in the way the gospel spread among the Gentiles in particular. Particularly, the message of the gospel was outrageously offensive to that entire cult, all the cultures of the Gentiles in that day. Every one of those cultures had their many gods. And here comes this message saying, there's only one God. Only one God. And you have to serve Him. Isn't that a little bit like our culture today? We may not call them gods, but you go out and start saying there's one God, one person who determines truth, one person who determines morality, and what do you get? You go, oh, that might be good for you, and that's nice, and, but that's not necessarily my truth, and that may not be their truth, right? We have, we have many gods. We have the same situation that we're facing today. And they were perceived as the most exclusive, excluding message of the day. If you don't believe this, you're not going to heaven. If you don't believe this, you're not following God and you're not right. And yet, at the same time, they were the most inclusive people in their actions in the pagan world. In uh, 361, uh, the emperor Julian assumed office. And he came into the office in Rome. Actually, it was in Constantinople at that time. With the one goal of restoring Roman paganism and putting down Christianity. And he writes this about Christianity. Who actually, He actually, in the quote, actually calls the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the God that he was promoting. That's the reason he calls them atheists. But he writes this about the Christians. He says, the Christians... Uh, the Christians have been specially, uh, the Christian cause, Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers, through their care for the burial of the dead. And what he's referring to there historically is that the Christians during that era were the only ones who were willing to actually care for people during, like, the plague, at the risk of their own life, and bury the dead in that time at the risk of their own life. And he looks at that and goes, I, These guys are insane in their gratitude and service and love to even do that. And he says, he goes on to say, it is is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless, again referring to the Christian Galileans, that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for for the help that we should render them. He's seeing his inadequacy of, of serving people and being extravagant in, his, in, the, in the poor. And he's looking at the Christians going, man, they are caring for each other with radical generosity, radical commitment, even in the midst of offense, even in the midst of me trying to put them down. What can we do? These guys are so amazing in their pursuit and their love of other people. And the question is, how, how are we as intentional? in caring for our friends and our neighbors who are either not Christians or who are Christians only in the sense that they think they grew up in a Christian culture and therefore they're Christians, but they have no idea who the real Jesus is. No relationship with Him. Do we seek to intentionally do life with them, to serve them, to share the gospel with them, risking offense and even coming back more after that? You see... uh, the message that we're dealing with and wrestling with is, is hard for us to face. It says that basically it's, if you're never offensive, if you never hear somebody say to you, you blankety-blank Christian, then you're probably a coward 
or at the very least, you're inconsistent in your beliefs and the way you're living in your life. Because Jesus says, if you follow me, you will be offensive. Are we willing to be that? On the other hand, it's also telling us that if you're constantly offensive, then you're not being following me either because you're just being obnoxious. The scripture doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for obnoxiousness' sake. That's a lot of S's and hard to say. It says persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, if you're not both outrageously inclusive in your actions of love and service and pursuing people and also bravely exclusive in your message and actually sharing the message, then something's wrong. And we all have... Maybe, maybe all of us have been through times in our life where we've, where we've been that obnoxious person and we've experienced that and we've flip-flopped and we go back and forth and we shared, people, shared, people, shared Christ with people years ago and they got offended and we felt like we did it wrong so we haven't done it for the last three, four years or five years or whatever. And Jesus is calling us to something beyond that. Jesus, we see in this passage was rejected by people he grew up with, the people who he played with, the people who he loved with, the people who he mourned with when family members died, the people who he struggled and sweated with. He was rejected by them as a bastard. And yet this passage says this amazingly weird statement. He couldn't do any miracles with them save only pray for a few people and see them healed. I don't, that that's just kind of a, funny weird phrase isn't it couldn't do any miracles and yet he healed some people what's that about what's that about isn't that jesus isn't that jesus pushing back on their offensiveness towards him even in the midst of their offensiveness and his attempt to continue to pursue them with this inclusive relationship and kindness even in the midst of their lack of belief and and, and offensiveness to him still trying to heal them, hoping the softness will somehow break out of their hearts and they'll respond to him. On the cross, we can even look at it and say that Jesus experienced the ultimate rejection, the forsakenness of the Father, so that we would never experience that. Tim Keller has this quote about that. He says, he got the ultimate rejection. Jesus got the ultimate rejection so that we would get the ultimate acceptance, that we would have a name, we would have a place as the sons and daughters of God, the King of Kings. Who cares what the elite think? Who cares what family and friends and the common people, common folk think? When you're loved by the King, it doesn't make any difference. When you're completely accepted by the King, you know, while the gospel message at its core is, comes across exclusive, the core truth of the Bible is that God came to pursue and love his enemies. And if God loved his enemies so much to come as Jesus and to die for us, then how can we be exclusive to anyone? If the heart of the universe is this amazing, kind, self-giving love, this ultimate power of all, humbling themselves to entangle themselves in the ordinariness of our everyday life and to risk loving us and tell us how much God loves us. Can't we do the same thing? Are you willing to be both attractive and offensive? 
That's the question of the day. I haven't forgotten Memorial Day. I want to do something for just a second as a close to the service to honor some people and also wrap the message up. If you're here today and you know someone who has been killed or wounded in the service of our country, whether it was military or police, in the fight to protect our freedom, would you please stand so we can have a visual representation of what we're remembering today? You know somebody who was killed or wounded in the service of the military. Thank you. And if you're here and you have served in the military or the police in a way to protect our freedom, would you also join them in standing? Can we just applaud and give thanks? You may be seated. I want to wrap with us making a tribute to that by watching this video, and we'll close the message after this. So my wife, Wendy, found that video on Friday, and I'm sitting there in another place of the house, and I hear her bawling her head off. And she says, I found this video. And I said, well, forward it to me. She goes, I can't watch it again. So I'm thinking, oh, mush ball. I watched it five times, and, okay, if I say the manly thing, I teared up five, all five times. I cried. Isn't it amazing to hear somebody turn to you and say, I fought for you. Isn't it amazing to think about all the millions who have fought, been wounded, and died over the last couple centuries to secure us freedom, who from their graves would be saying to us, I fought for you, and I'd do it again. Regardless of what we think about the political decisions that have led us into wars over the centuries in the last decade, regardless of whether we think the political reasons were justified or unjustified, it's, this is a time to honor those who have fought for us, those who have fought against terror to keep us safe. It's a time to honor those who, regardless of whether you think the political reasons were justified or not, the facts are that millions of people now in the last decade have a shot at freedom, potentially even religious freedom, who did not before. We honor that. We celebrate that. Somewhere around 2005, 2006, I was on one of those little annoying jump flights from Seattle to Portland up in the northwest. And I usually sat on the aisle, so I sat in my aisle seat and, and walks a guy who was uh, on leave from Afghanistan for a few weeks uh, to be able to come home and uh, sat in the aisle one row ahead of me. And sitting next to uh, this uh, typical Northwest woman dressed kind of like a beatnik, and that's not a judgmental comment. It's just a descriptive comment. Uh, Within about two minutes, she was talking to him about how immoral she thought it was what he was doing and how immoral the war was and really going at it with him. Thankfully, she stopped about two minutes in, three minutes into the, the flight, Uh, So, you know, five, ten minutes of going after him between taxi and flight. And I and a couple guys around and a couple people around who had heard it, you know, reached out and encouraged the guy and thanked him for fighting for us. That man that day got to experience the offense of a person over his mission. Today, this message, this passage that we are at today is all about inviting us into that same battle. 
to be willing to take that same offense for Jesus, for a cause that is so much greater, for a cause that determines the the freedom of people now and determines the freedom of people for a lifetime, for an eternity. And I think the question today is, are we willing to serve graciously, to build relationship with even people that we know could be our enemy, who may at any moment strap on emotional explosives. Thankfully, we most, most of us never have to deal with real explosives, but who might strap on emotional explosives and blow us up at a time. Are we willing to do that? And the question for us then becomes, who is Jesus sending you to? Without a backup plan, to live with, to befriend, to work with, to play with, to serve with, who we will also share the story of the gospel with. We'll not just be people who serve and hope they ask, but we will serve extravagantly, love extravagantly, and we will share. My invitation to you is to write those names down. Write down the names of the people. Become intentional. Be brave enough to share your faith so that one day when we stand before God, we can turn to someone and we can say, I fought for you, just as Jesus is turning to us now and saying, I fought for you. Will you join me in that same fight to transform lives, to reach our community? Lord, we bless you today. We honor you, and we honor the example of people who, in earthly fashion, have fought for us in the way you fought for us, to protect freedom, to bring freedom, to care for us and sacrifice so much as you paid the ultimate price. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come today and that you would give us courage and that you give us discipline, that you would give us focus and a heart that bleeds to one day hear many people that we can turn to and say, I fought for you and for them to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you would love to be prayed for for any need whatsoever, whether you need healing Uh, Maybe you have somebody that you know who's in the military and you'd like some other people to pray for you and for them. We'd be happy to do that. God bless. Have a great week.